just sang this psalm. It'll be familiar as we read through it, uh, but just believe strongly that this is where the Lord would have us um, uh, to, to camp out here for our time in his word. Uh, this psalm has been so important to me in my relationship with the Lord um, in many seasons of my life, and it continues to be somewhere I return to often. And I believe as we go through this text tonight that you will find out as well. And I believe that the Lord and His Spirit will uh, bring truth uh, to this through this psalm to your heart that will uh, be a source of comfort for uh, prayerfully the rest of your walk and your relationship with the Lord. There's certain chapters in the Bible that uh, we return to often, and Psalm 27 uh, should be one of them. But let's do this. Let's read through it. Let's pray, and then we will get into uh, the message here this evening. It says this, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord... That will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. From the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me, he shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me, and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say. On the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word here this evening, Lord. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. I thank you for the sufficiency of your grace, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that you have promised us, Lord, that if we seek you with an open and an honest heart, Lord, that you will uh, be found by us, Lord. Your word says if we draw near to you, that you will draw near to us, Lord. And so that's what we're here to do, Lord. We're not here for any other reason, Lord, but to know your heart and to know your mind. Lord, you know all things about us. You know the things in our life that we are working through and struggling with. You know the things in our life that are not pleasing to you. And yet you love us, Lord. Uh, You love us deeply and you desire for us to walk closely with you. So Lord, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. What I want to talk to you about tonight is how to wait upon the Lord effectively. Uh, We live in a very fast-paced society, and yet one thing that we need to get used to is this concept of waiting upon the Lord. There are certain things in our life that are not electives. They are mandatory courses. We have to learn this lesson. Uh, Perhaps you find yourself in a season of waiting upon the Lord now, or you Um, are going to find yourself in a season of waiting at some point in your life. The reason why I opened our time together and said that this will be a time, or excuse me, a psalm that you will find yourself returning to often is because how intensely practical David is right now. He himself is is in a time of waiting, and he's in a time of waiting after a great failure in his life. He's in the situation he's in, not because of some great step of faith, but because of his lack of faith. 
He's in the position he's in right now, frankly, because of his disobedience. David, the man after God's own heart, has failed the Lord. And we have the musings of his own heart before God during this time. Sometimes when we go through the Psalms, we can read through them quickly and we don't read through them meditatively. And a lot of times we skip the introduction to the Psalm, which is not wise. This says, uh, a Psalm of David. Now we could, we could read over that and miss a ton of richness in this that the Holy Spirit desires to put before us. Or we could just camp out on this for a little bit and remember who this man was. When you look at David, you see a person who is so unlikely to be called great. He is the, the least of the least of his brothers. And yet God called him. God had a plan for him. Before he was even ever born. We see this, if you read the book of Ruth, he would, he would come through and how the Lord would sustain and maintain Ruth's life so that um, she could give birth to Obed and Obed could give birth to Jesse and Jesse could be the father of David. God was always preparing his man for a specific task. And God, God's eyes was on, were on David far before any other person's eyes were upon David. God was preparing David in the shepherd's field alone. Now we know David as the shepherd who became a great king, but there was 15 to 20 years between the time of his anointing by Saul to the time he actually became the king of Israel. And it wasn't just this time where he was just waiting and twiddling his thumbs in the shepherd's field. In fact, quite the opposite. The moment that he was anointed king and the calling was revealed to him, battles ensued in his life. He was hated by his brothers. His brothers were jealous of him. Not for something that he did, but because something God did in his life. The prophet Samuel shows up and anoints him king. We, we, we see this story take place in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord tells the prophet Samuel to go anoint the next king. I see me a king, I see a man, a man after my own heart. I've rejected Saul, I've chosen David, go anoint him. And Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and Jesse sends up ten of his sons, and the, Samuel wants to uh, anoint the first one because he's big and he looks like a king. And the Lord tells Samuel, don't look at his outward appearance, Samuel. For God doesn't see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. And as he went down the line of Jesse's sons, he realized it's not him. It's not him. It's not him. And Samuel would say to Jesse, surely you have another son. And he said, yes, I do. But he's, he's insignificant. He's small. He's not even worthy to come to my table. He's out keeping the sheep. Shepherds in biblical times were the least of society. So not only was David just the least in his father's house, he was the least in society. Why are we encouraged by this? Because God takes us the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The things that are despised and re rejected, those are the things that God has chosen. And God chose David. And Samuel told Jesse, we're not going to go any further till you bring your son. And the Lord says, this is the man, and he anoints him. And what, what happens immediately? As soon as he's anointed, he's met with the envy and the jealousy of his brothers. And he did nothing. He did nothing. He didn't manufacture this calling. He didn't seek this calling. The calling sought him. The promise sought him. The will of God sought him. He goes to take Goliath out and his brothers again come against him and they're jealous of him. He's, he's immediately facing being despised and rejected by his own brothers because of nothing that he has done but because what God is doing in his life. And therein lies one of the many lessons in just taking this statement here, a psalm of David, because I see a psalm of a lonely man. God was raising him up, 
but God was teaching him how to walk with God alone. You could be surrounded by people. You could be part of a big family, but within that, you are, can, can just feel this deep sense of loneliness that the Lord is asking David to walk in. He kills Goliath, and what happens? Immediately, Saul tries to take his life. And for 15 years, he's on the run. And you would think, God anointed me in a dramatic way. When is this plan going to take place? Have you ever been in a position where you felt as if you should doubt the promises of God? God gave you a promise in your time alone with him. He spoke to you. He confirmed it to you. And then everything that happened in your life from that point was contrary to what God promised you. That's the life of David. That's the life of David. Every time that Saul got close to him, though, to kill him, God would intervene. Then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 21, which is a very interesting chapter. Because Saul would make David the the commander of the armies of Israel for one purpose, and one purpose only. For the hopes that David would go to war and be killed by the Philistines. Why? Because Saul was jealous. Because God's hand was upon Saul, or excuse me, was upon David, and he had removed his hand upon Saul, from upon Saul. But everywhere David went, he had victory. When, when God is with you, nothing, can, nothing and no one can be against you. If God has called you, nothing and no one can be against you. And David would operate in faith, and God would give him victory. And what was happening is God was securing his role of leadership in the hearts, in the lives, in the eyes of the people of Israel by the way he was handling warfare. Again, he just walked in the direction God led him, and God gave him victory, and God was raising him up. God was raising David up. David wasn't raising David up. God was raising David up. And up until chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, he was having victories, but... What happens when we're weary in warfare? Our eyes begin to drift from the Lord and on to our circumstances, and fear begins to grip our hearts, and we act in the flesh. And that's what David does. He flees to Achish, and he, you, you all know the story. He hears that Saul is going to kill him, and he goes and scratches at the doorpost, and he, he has saliva drip down his beard, and he, he's acting like a madman. This man, after God's own heart, allows fear to grip his heart, allows torment to grip his mind, and he resorts to the flesh, and he acts the fool. He lies to the priest. The priest gives him Goliath's sword. What ends up happening from there is Saul finds out, and Saul goes and kills everyone in that city. Why? Because David allowed fear to lead him and not his confidence in God. So where is David when he's writing this psalm? David is in a place called the cave of Adullam. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 22 that all of those who were poor and those who were discontented in heart gathered to David in the cave. So now David, after his great failure that resulted in the death of many people, is being called to lead again. And who's he calling, being called to lead? Those who are poor, those who are discontent, and those who are in debt. That's a difficult group to lead. But you and I can't lead effectively until our hearts are dealt with. So I want you to notice David, again, he's in the cave of Adullam. He's failed. He has a, all he has is a promise of God and 400 sets of eyes looking at him for the next step. And the utter awareness of his own failure. So he cries out to the Lord. And what I want you to note is the progression that this psalm takes. It is wise that you and I take this progression. Because he's going to remind himself of who God is to him. You want to wait effectively? Write this down. Know who God is. It's simple. It's simple. But you will have no victory in your life apart from these steps. 
I'm just what he said. He says, the Lord is my light. He's in a situation where he doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what the next step is. But he says that he doesn't just say the Lord is light. He says the Lord is, he's my light. He possesses God for himself. The Lord is my light. He gives me light in my darkness. He gives me light in the deepest, darkest areas of my own heart that I need the Holy Spirit to shed light upon me lest I walk in a way of error. He gives me light. Maybe you're there tonight. Maybe you're walking in the awareness of just how sinful you are. And the Lord doesn't show you those things to condemn you because the Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He shows you those things so that you can bring those things to him, find forgiveness and redemption and salvation in him, and walk in the confidence of his love and his grace and his mercy for you. He never shows you and sheds light on your sinfulness without giving you a greater measure of light into his greatness. The Lord is my light. And notice what he said. He, he's my salvation. David was aware of his inability to save himself. He, the Lord himself is my salvation. David was a capable warrior. And we know as we read scripture of his mighty men that followed him, he had capable warriors around him. But he wasn't confident in the arm of the flesh. He knew he needed the Lord to act. So he says, the Lord is my light. He gives me light. He gives me salvation. And so he says, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Notice what produces fear in our lives. I, I want to flip the... Hopefully, the Lord will grant me the grace to shed this in another light. Walk through verses 1 and 2 with me again. The Lord is my light. When are we afraid? When we don't know what's going on? When we don't know what the next step is going to be? When we don't know what's going to take place in our life? He says, the Lord is my salvation. When else are we afraid? When we feel insecure in our own inability to protect ourselves, to direct ourselves, to provide for ourselves? When else do we feel afraid? When... When we are brought into the light and the understanding of our own frailty and weakness and inability to do anything, that's when fear grips the heart. So what is David doing? He's getting his eyes off of himself. You want to wait effectively? Get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes off of other people. Get your eyes off of the circumstances. Place your eyes and your heart solely upon the Lord and realize who he is. He's your light. He's your salvation. He's the strength of your life. Are you afraid that when he takes away your strength, he's not able to give you his? Doesn't the Bible say when we are weak, then we are made strong? We kick against weakness. Society kicks against weakness. Weakness is a precious commodity in the life of the Christian. I'll say this. The acknowledgement of your own weakness is a precious commodity in the sight of the Lord. So David is saying, I know who I'm not, but I know who he is, therefore I have nothing to be afraid of. Second point, verse 2. Verse 3, verse 2 and 3 say this. If you want to wait effectively, spend time meditating on the path faith, past faithfulness of God. What God has done in your life up until this point. Because the Lord's going to continue, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. Get used to the reality of the impossibility of doing anything for the Lord, going anywhere for the Lord, apart from his grace and the operation of your faith in your life. The Lord, Christianity should be a series of utter impossibilities so that he can be glorified and your faith can grow. Get used to walking by faith. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. That we walk by faith and not by sight. We want to live in the, 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 this tangible world, but we're all that are worldly. That's why the Bible says to set your mind on things above, not on things that are on this earth. Get used to operating in faith. Notice what David says. He has plenty of victories to, to call his mind back to about how faithful God has been in the past. He says, when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. So in the past, 
Every time the enemy has just gotten close enough to kill me, the Lord's intervened. The Bible says that there is no weapon formed against his people that will prosper. And every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, you shall condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication comes from me, says the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17. Do you know your heritage in the Lord? Do you know that God is actually for you? Do you believe that? You've heard that, but do you believe that? God is working all things together for good. Oh, it sounds good when it's on like a memory card, or it sounds good when it's on your refrigerator, Jeremiah 29, 11, but what, what if you're put in the position where everything looks contrary to that? Everything looks contrary to the goodness of God being at work in your life. Do you still believe it? David is right now. I'm re- he's remembering, he's recalling to mind just how close the enemy got to him. And then the Lord intervenes. He always does that. He's so real. He's so faithful. Children of Israel at the Red Sea, the two um, mountains be- beside them and the Egyptians behind them and the Red Sea before them. What does the Lord tell Moses to do? He says, stand still. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He says this in verse 3. Though an army may encamp against me. This is amazing to me. My heart shall not fear. He doesn't address what to do. He addresses the condition of his heart. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may arise against me, in this I will be confident. Because God has delivered me in the past, he's going to deliver me again. Just get used to this. You're going to be put in series of impossibilities as a child of God because that is the means in which God has chosen to produce genuine faith in your life. Or you could just play it safe. Or you could take no steps of faith. Or you could just settle for powerless, marginal Christianity, which is the default of the church in America today. Or you could say, here I am, Lord, use me, and I'll walk in the direction you point. Not knowing what's ahead, but knowing God knows, and knowing that God will defeat every enemy that comes against you. Third step, third point in waiting upon God effectively is simplicity. Stay simple in your desires. Nothing will destroy spirituality your relationship with God, nothing will quench the Holy Spirit in your life more than covetousness, which is idolatry, the Bible says. And the Bible says no idolater will inherit the kingdom of God. With Psalm, 1, Psalm 119, verses 36 through, 33 through 38, I believe it is, uh, the psalmist is praying, Lord, um, turn my eyes from worthless things. And do not incline my heart to covetousness, but to your statutes. This world is so demonically driven right now that our eyes are so shifty, our hearts are so wicked, we have an idolatrous heart. But if you want to wait effectively, you don't have to add suffering to suffering. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like you could be in a season of waiting and it's difficult and it's hard and you can get weary in it, but because you get weary in it, you, you, you're just content to like distract yourself and scroll the feed and desire other things other than what God has for you. Or you could just do what David does. One thing have I desired. When, when was the last time that was really the condition of your heart? I just want, I just want one thing. I can think right now of like 13,000 things that I actually want, and I'm just being transparent with you. Not all of them are bad, but if God wanted me to have them, I would have them, so it's covetousness, so it's sinful. And I repent of that daily. But he says, one thing, you want to wait effectively? Get simple. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and this is what suffering does. It, it purifies your desires. One thing I, I have desired of the Lord. And notice this. Notice his progression. He's just, this is what made David the great lover of God, the God chaser. He didn't just desire God. He, he sought God. He, he responded to the prompting of God upon his life. 
I have a desire to seek God. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In a time where he doesn't know a lot of things, he's desiring one thing, and it's the only thing that can remedy a broken, a confused, and a discouraged heart. And that is the Lord himself. Do you know that? It's not what God can give to you. If, if he blessed you monetarily, he, if he blessed you relationally and didn't give you himself, it all falls short. It's not about what he can give. It's about, it's about him. And when you get to this place in your relationship with the Lord, is Lord, I, I just want you. I don't want anything from you. I'm, and the reason I don't want anything from you is because I, I'm fully confident of your ability to provide for me every good thing that I need when I need it. What do God's promises really do for us? They enable us to love God without hindrance. Because when you get to a place where you're just, you're just surrendered... And you're just broken before the Lord. Getting out of the suffering, it, it stops mattering. The financial, the bills that need to be paid and the direction that you need, when you really reach a place of surrender and confidence in his promises, you're free to love him because your heart is not anxious about what he's not doing. Your heart is consumed with him because you're confident of what he will do. Because he makes all things beautiful in his time. He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly with him. So a lot of surrender needs to happen in waiting, and a lot of surrender has happened in David's life. He's a broken man. He's coming off a defeat. And I, and, I, and, I, and I wonder sometimes, like, does David ever just want to go back to the shepherd's field where it was just him and the Lord and the sheep, and that's it? I think the more responsibility that the Lord places upon you, the more you de just desire him. One thing I have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, notice, to behold the beauty of the Lord. The, the word literally means the delightfulness of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. What an amazing thing to say. I, I think this is one of the great travesties in Christianity today. Is that we have lost this art of biblical meditation this world's meditation is emptying your mind biblical meditation is filling your mind with the truth of God's word and I just want to behold notice the beauty of the Lord when was the last time beholding him was just delightful to you and I don't say that to condemn you I say that so that you can come to him repentant and look, I, there's, there's often times in my own prayer life where I say, Lord, I, I'm ashamed of how little I love you. I really want to love you more. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me. That you would help me love you more. I'm ashamed of how little I desire you at times, how distracted my mind can be from you at times, Lord. But Because we, sometimes we walk with the Lord as if he doesn't really know. Like, he knows you don't want to read your Bible. He knows you don't want to spend time with him. So why are we faking the funk with him? Like, let's just be real and bring realness and genuineness into your relationship with him and say, doesn't the Bible say that if you're, it, like, he'll take out a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh? And if you're just open with him, he'll deal with your heart, but he's not going to until there's brokenness and honesty and true repentance. 
It's like I, there, there's people I know in my life that love Jesus a lot. I have a really good friend, and he's. I love him like so dearly. And he's out on the East Coast, and, and he loves God so much. And I'm so jealous of that. And I'm like, Lord, I, I just want to love you the way he loves you, but then I, I don't really. I, I just want to be real with you and transparent with you, and I want to desire to just behold you. Lord, you could take it whatever you want, Lord, but I just want to want you more. You know, you can be that real with him. And that's the beauty of David. That's the beauty of the Psalms. That's the reality of what we have in a man's prayer life that was used mightily by God. And he gets simple. And you know what happens in his simplicity? God meets him, God prepares him, and God uses him, and God picks him up, dusts him off, and sends him off to the next battle. And the Spirit of God works upon him in power. He says in verse 5, he says, For in the time of trouble... He shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. This place of height speaks of a place of security and safety from your enemies. And he, he hides. He, the Bible says that we are hidden with Christ in God. And sometimes in our insecurities, that's what makes us insecure in our relationship with him. And, and we need to realize that, that the Lord... Is, he has a way of being a shield about us. And if we will bring our insecurities to him, we'll, we'll, we will trust him to hide us, to hide us in the secret place of his tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where God dwells. Verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Fourthly, if you wait upon God effectively, it's to worship him passionately. Notice what he says. I will offer sacrifices of joy. You know that joy can be chosen I'm not talking about happiness. You know that in the most miserable times of your life, you can offer the Lord a sacrifice of joy. I'm going to choose to be joyful because I know that you are good and I know I don't understand. It's not making sense. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to choose joy today. And you place that on the altar and the fire of God comes upon it and it's consumed and it's a sweet smelling aroma to him. If you read, I'm in Leviticus in my own devotional time with the Lord right now. I'm reading through all the sacrifices and I'm just going through it very slowly because there's something unique about it to me and just the reality of sacrifice all through scripture and how unwilling I am to sacrifice to the Lord, the things that cost me something. That could be costing you an hour of your sleep. That can be costing you time alone with friends. But what makes sacrifice? It's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost you anything. He gave his life. He gave it all. And yet we just want to receive. We want to be recipients. The Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Will you choose to be joyful and offer him the sacrifice of joy because it's difficult? And it costs you something. But you offer it to him in faith. Fifthly, to wait effectively, we need to, we need to praise him. I will sing, um, I might have already said that. I, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. You want to see God move in your time of waiting? Worship him. Worship him in song. Give him the praises of your lips. The sacrifice of your praise is pleasing to the Lord. Maybe, maybe you've been in a time where you're praying and you're reading, it's time to stop, it's time to start worshiping. It's time to start worshiping. And if you're here tonight and the Lord has called you to worship, you're never going to experience the power of God 
at work in your life until you live a life of complete surrender and worship him in spirit and in truth, not in front of people primarily, but alone in your heart before him. God will move when you praise him, when your mind is fixed upon him. You want to wait effectively? Verse 7 You need to pray passionately. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy upon me and answer me. So there's a lot that takes place between verse 7 and 8, and I'm going to bridge this gap quickly because we've got some ground to cover. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. I love this prayer. Because he's asking the Lord to hear it. He's crying out with his voice. And he's not really asking for anything. He's just asking for something that is already his. And that is the mercy of God. Have mercy also upon me. And answer me. You ever been in this place where it's like, Lord, if you will just speak, I'll do it. But in verse 8, the Lord speaks. And I want to say this before. Don't look at it. Don't look at it yet. If this is what God says to you in your time of waiting and you're begging him to speak, will you be content to obey the way David obeys in this voice? Or excuse me, in this verse. If you want to be an effective waiter, be obedient to what he reveals. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. He's crying out to the Lord for him to answer him, and the Lord answers him. And what, what does the Lord say? He says, seek my face. He's like, no, you, you understand, Lord. i got to lead these guys. They're not the greatest group of guys. The king of all Israel is trying to murder me. I'm in a cave. I have no food. I have no provision. And I'm going into another battle. Like, I needed something a little more than just seek me <laughs> right now. But that's what the Lord tells him. And maybe the, in your time of waiting, it's not that you don't know what God is telling you to do. The problem is you do know, and you're just not doing it. Because it seems too simple to you. Because what happens in the seeking of the face of God, this, this word picture here is like, don't, don't seek anything from me, but... When I want to talk to my daughters, some of you saw them here tonight, they all have different personalities, and they're all amazing and beautiful and wonderful. I have to deal with them all differently. But one thing, there's one thing that I do to all three of them when they're struggling. And I grab their face, and I tell them to look at me in the eyes. Now, that process looks different in their lives because one's more emotional than the other, another one's a little more ornery than the other. But we don't get anywhere. I can't give them the next step till they're looking at me. And that's what the Lord does to us. He just says, look at me. I need you to be focused on my face. Because in the beholding of my face, they're going to see my expression. They're going to hear my tone. And when they see the love that is in my eyes and the compassion that's in my heart, they will then obey willingly. And that's what the Lord wants to do to you. How do you hear the voice of the Lord? If you're not beholding him, if he tells you to get rid of the relationship, you may be hearing it like that. But when you behold him, it's like, no, I love you. I have better for you. Move forward. But are you beholding him? Do you, do you know the God that you serve is what it comes down to. And this is what the Lord is asking for David. And the Lord just said, seek my face. And notice the obedience of David's heart. My heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. He says, do not hide. Notice, if you want me to seek your face, don't hide your face from me. I love the simplicity and the power of this prayer. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. For you have been my help. Do not leave me 
nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. He's, again, he's in this place of dependency. The greatest leaders in the Bible are dependent leaders who walk in the light of who they're not, and they know that they need the power of God upon their life. Verse 10. When my father and my mother forsake me, when those who have been given this charge by God himself to care for me, and as I grow, my relationship with them changes, but they're still to be my mother and my father. But when they forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. When the closest familial relationship that I have on this earth runs dry and proves to be insufficient, then the Lord will take care of me. You will, everyone in your life will fail you at some point, and you will fail others in your life. Your parents are going to fail you. Your parents probably have. But notice what's happening here. Notice where his eyes are. They're on the Lord. Then the Lord will take care of me. And now he can, he's free to love them. He's free to love his parents. Because he doesn't have unrealistic expectations upon them. He says this in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. You want to wait effectively? Beg him that he teach you the next step to take. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path. Notice why. He's not asking this because of um, he wants an easy life. That's not what he's asking. What, what, is, he, what is he doing? He's, he's very aware of the reality of his enemy, and so should you and I be here tonight. You want to wait effectively? Realize there are demonic forces that are trying to destroy you. God has a plan for your life. Yes, that's true, but so does Satan. God will never give up on you. He wants to prosper you. He wants to bless you. He wants you to walk in his will and his way. And he'll never give up on you, but neither will the enemy. He will always be there. But he's already defeated and we already have victory. So every battle you go through is just an opportunity for not the enemy to experience the victory, but for you to walk in the light of the victory that's already yours before you have it. That's what the Bible calls us more than conquerors. Being a conqueror is someone who's already won the battle. But being more than a conqueror is someone who enters the battle knowing that they've already won the battle. He said, lead me in the smooth path because of my enemies. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. He says, don't deliver me to the will of my adversary. I love this because he's aware. You want to wait effectively? Be aware of the reality of your enemy. Don't, don't walk through this world as if there's not an adversary trying to destroy you. He says, don't deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, in such as breathe out violence. And here is this final point here in verses 13 and 14. Waiting on the Lord is a heart issue. It's the maintenance of your heart before God until he acts, until he does the next thing. He says, I would have lost heart <clears throat> unless I had believed. Do you believe when everything is contrary to belief? Do you believe when everything, when every door is closed? When God has given you a promise and everything is contrary to it. When he's shown you what he's going to do next, but the further you walk in obedience to him, the more impossible it gets. The question is, do you believe? Jesus says, these are the works of God that you believe 
on Jesus Christ whom he sent. Then when he went to his own town, he couldn't do any mighty work there because of his unbelief, and he can do no mighty work in your life if there's unbelief in your heart. And we find ourselves like the man in the Gospels who had the son who was possessed, and he asked the Lord to heal him, and he said, the Lord responded, he said, do you believe? And what we honor about this man is the genuineness of his heart. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. God can work with that. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And wait on the Lord, he says. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. This word wait literally means to wait in faith. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. If you want to wait effectively, you have to give your heart completely to him. And you have to be of good courage while you're waiting upon him. Now, how does one do that? And I'll, I'll tell you this, nothing in the world is going to do that for you. What is courage? It doesn't just take courage to take the mountain for God. It takes courage to wait in faith for God to work. Sometimes it's easy when the Lord points out the direction to go and to take the step of faith. That's easy. But can you wait in faith for what God wants to do next? That takes courage as well. Courage is being brave. You don't need courage if you're not afraid. And the Lord calls us to be courageous and to wait upon him. Because he will strengthen your heart. Why did I, I, I didn't do it. The Holy Spirit, I believe, brought me to this text, and, and we're done. You guys can close your Bibles. This has been a like I said at the beginning, this is this is a psalm in my life that the Lord has used in great degrees, and I pray it's a psalm for you. This is actually a psalm um, for the guys that have been leadership here for, I've, I've been teaching Thursday nights for a decade now, for 10 years, and um, I, I've, I've actually visited this psalm often, but it never loses its richness, and I believe that this psalm has kind of been the pattern of a lot of people's lives here on Thursday evenings, because this is an interesting season of life, right? Waiting on the Lord to see what he's going to do by means of marriage. Waiting on the Lord to see what he's going to do about your calling, about direction in your life. And I believe that this is a lesson that the Lord has been teaching me over the past many years. And I believe that I, I can teach it because the Lord has led me and in, is leading me through it. And I believe it's a lesson that the Lord wants to drill into your hearts here tonight. And I wanted to deposit this to you there, there's many there's many things that I was praying through of what what I what could I give to you tonight and the Lord just wasn't wasn't giving it to me but if there's one thing that I could like deposit into your hearts it would be this this the importance of this lesson of learning how to wait upon God and I, and I said a lot of things tonight I gave a lot of points but I, I believe this is perhaps one of the most important things that we can learn. Because God has so much for you. He has such a great plan in store for all of your lives. And so, um, why am I saying, like, why is there one thing I could deposit to you guys? Because this, this will be the last message that I give on Thursday night. Um, the Lord is leading me on and going to do a greater work, I believe, here on Thursday nights. Um, it's been a privilege, it's been an honor for me to, um, 
to grow in this capacity and to teach you all. Um, but I, I'm really excited about what God has in store. I've never known more in my life that this, uh, of something that the Lord wants to do. Um, for those of you who don't know, there's, there's a lot of hats that I wear, wear here um, at the chapel. And um, the Lord is opening other doors for me. There's other things that I have to be faithful in. And more than that, it's, and this is not about me. Uh, this is about what God wants to do next in this ministry. And you guys have an opportunity for that. So I'm going to be, not going anywhere, I'm not leaving the church. I'm going to be here. Um, I'm going to be here um, just as much as I've always been here. Um, but I am stepping out of this role, and why? Because of all that I just said, but also because I believe um, it is so important to continue to raise up Bible teachers in this day that we live in. One thing that our pastor has modeled to us is this willingness to give opportunity and to give opportunity often and to look unto guys, young guys, and just throw them in the fire, for lack of better terms, and watch them grow. And it's, an, it's been an honor that he's done that in my life and us as a pastoral staff are doing that in Eddie's life. And this ministry, gonna, he's going to take the reins of this, and I believe God has great things in store for the young adults here at Calvary Chapel Golden Springs. Um, I believe that God, I, I don't just believe, I know that God has called Eddie to take this role and I believe God's anointed him for this and I believe that God is going to use him mightily and that God wants to use you all mightily. Um, with that being said, what I don't want is like this, uh, this emotional night tonight because it's not about me. It's never been about me. And if you guys come here for me, then I say it boldly, but I say it humbly. You're here for the wrong reasons. This is about the Lord. And God is going to be glorified, and God's going to do a great work. So, Eddie, come up here. I want to pray for you, and um, I'm excited for what God is going to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gift and the calling of God upon our lives, Lord. Um, Lord, I thank you for every person in this room, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for Eddie, that you'd anoint him, that you'd grant him vision and passion and direction, Lord. That you go before him in power, Lord. And that you bless this ministry, Lord. I'm, I'm thankful for what you've allowed me to be a part of, Lord. Uh, these are your sheep. These are your people, Lord. And we pray that you tend them. In Jesus' name. Awesome. Why don't you stand? One more song will be dismissed, guys. I'll be around.